thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson Casey. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today, I am so lucky because I'm with the lovely Lana McLaughlin, who is a psychologist with Mind HQ, and she works as a performance consultant. And how I found her was through a wonderful article she wrote about disordered sleep in an elite athletes and the possible solutions. So welcome, Lana. Hi, Carrie. How are you going? I'm great, thanks. So, really Lana, good. tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm a recent graduate from the Masters of Sport and Exercise Psychology program at the University of Queensland. I graduated about 15 months ago and part of the research we did there was with the AIS looking at sleep and athletes. Um, I got into psychology with no intention of doing sport and exercise as my specialisation. Okay. Uh, I um, had intended to go through in neuropsychology and in undergrad did some internships in cognitive neuropsych and really enjoyed it, um, but took a couple of years off after finishing my honours year um, and then somehow ended up in sport and exercise psychology because ultimately that's where my passion was. So I suppose that just worked out in the end. So when you say a passion, you're an athlete yourself? I was a very long time ago. I was on the national team uh, for synchronised swimming. So I represented wow. Australian, Australian synchronised swimming. Yeah, not the most mainstream of sports, uh, particularly in this country, but uh, very challenging nonetheless. So was that like a – so when you say nationally, what kind of – you know, how many years were you competing at a national level? So I was on the Australian team for about four years. I competed at a world championships and a world cup event. Um, unfortunately, I got glandular fever about nine months out from the Sydney 2000 Olympics. So that, that ruled me out and I had no chance of, uh, of making it back again in time for the Games. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, so that's a bit, bit disappointing. Actually, at the time, I was too ill to be overly disappointed. But looking back now, you, you kind of really think that would have been nice. <laughs> yeah. But still, four years on a national team, that must be fairly impressive for an athlete to hold that position. Is it a very competitive sport? Is there a lot of women trying to get into that sport? Look, it's not It's not a huge participation sport in Australia. There's, the numbers certainly aren't massive, but it is very competitive. There's only, you know, 10 or, or so um, members on the team. So, you know, to be in that top 10, you, you've got to perform. Um, it's not a, it's certainly not a turn up and sign your name and you're in. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's very tough and, and I really enjoyed those years. They, uh, you know, I got a lot of travel and a lot of good experiences out of it and made some good friends. So yeah, it was a, a great experience. And how did you get into synchronised swimming in the first place? I was a dancer and a swimmer. Um, and I saw, this is really going to show my age, <laughs> I, I saw a, um, an Aquacade at Expo 88 in Brisbane. So they had a, a you know, beautiful show with lovely looking dancers in the water and I thought, oh, that looks lovely and fun. Uh, little did I realise how brutal a sport it actually okay. was. It looks, looks so pretty. but It does. Um, yeah, yeah. There's lots of, lots of holding your breath and, and quite extreme um, training and a lot of flexibility work and yeah you've got to you've got to be tough so 
uh, very enjoyable. Wow. No, it is like it's like dancing, I think, where people like ballet dancing, where people it's so graceful and beautiful on the stage. But, um, you know, lots of horrific injuries and long hours and um, crazy mangled feet. You know, not all of them have mangled feet. I shouldn't speak. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine it's quite grueling. So let's talk sleep and athletes. So tell us a bit about how that came together. Right. So. I work with Ruth Anderson. So Ruth Anderson was the head Olympic psychologist for Australia at the Beijing and London Olympics. Um, She approached the university when I was doing my master's to complete a research project looking at psychological recovery. So during the the Olympic Games in London and in Beijing, they have a recovery centre. So sometimes the recovery centre is in the athlete's village. Sometimes it's external. So either way, it's a place where the athletes go to recover after performance and get ready to perform the next day if they're in a multi-day event. Um, The centre has things like ice baths and, you know, exercise bikes, stretch mats, you know, foam rollers and all of the physio um, side of things. But they also, that's also where the sports psychologists do a lot of their work in, you know, getting their the athletes' heads back together, I suppose, and and that psychological recovery is a really important aspect of, of how the whole team performs. Yeah, I imagine it, it would. I mean, I think more and more in the media they're talking about the, the psychological role um, of, you know, like what that role has in terms of an athlete's performance. And I, I th- one of the other shows on uh, the wellness couch is Inside the Champion's Mind and I heard them recently interviewed Danny Morrison who was a cricketer for New Zealand and and he talked quite a bit about that mindset um, of of what happens when he goes out onto a cricket pitch and things like that so is that what you did as well so you worked a bit with the mindset or did you work specifically with just sleep? So the research we did was, was specifically looking at recovery so the performances are very stressful particularly at something like the Olympics where it's only every four years you can't replicate that environment easily um in terms of the stress it plays is that what you mean yeah in terms of the of the stress and just the general alien experience of it of of you know there's nothing else like it and no other competition that you go to um will be like the olympics will the hype and the pressure of it only being every four years i mean if that that's your one chance and you're not likely to make the next one in four years the pressure of that in itself is is very extreme okay um, so, but I mean, even for, for athletes, you know, professional athletes, football players who are playing week in, week out, that's still a, a very high level of stress that they're experiencing week in, week out. And the pressure to perform is intense. So the um, research was really just looking at, in with that recovery process and psychological recovery, how do athletes get back to a homeostasis state so that's that means back to normal so they're ready to go again yeah so that their stress levels are at a a manageable level their sleep quality um that they're functioning at as you said a level where everything's in harmony head to toe um and ready to go back out to perform again in the mindset of so yeah if you visualize it like batteries so the batteries are recharged and you know both physically and mentally recharged um when you think about stress i suppose on a day-to-day for for a non-athletic population 
um, it's very taxing to be stressed. It's tiring and not just physically, but mentally it's tiring. So that recovery and, and recharging those batteries mentally is very important because if you just continue to drain the batteries, um, your performance will decline. So that's right. Like the everyday person, as you said, the stressor may not be um, may not be performing at the Olympics, and the Olympics, as you said, comes around every four years. But for some people, it's facing um, a significant stressor that they never expected to have to face, or it's that accumulative effect of lots of little stresses that continue to, to that become chronic. So yes. what 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 has your research or your experience, um, like you you talked about? Um, athletes and they come into that room what what happens next so you assess yes. them what what, yeah. what what are you assessing them on what are you looking for a lot of the well the athletes themselves particularly in olympic games you you the support that's provided at olympic games is probably a little bit different than than anywhere else in <laughs> the that. everyday person <laughs> yeah the, yeah the coach the, and cheer squad there to yeah, yeah. You, you're not really there to take them apart you're there to to keep them going and 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 I suppose patch them back together so that they can keep performing. But you're not there to really, you know, pick things apart because ultimately um, they've got to get back together quite quickly. And so the process in that recovery centre, often whole teams would come in for relaxation sessions or um, PMR, which is the progressive muscle relaxation se sessions that can go anywhere between, you know, 10 and 40 minutes, um, which involve really just trying to encourage that recovery, psychological recovery process. So, yeah, so um, what was the, the what kind of things did you see that were quite concerning, I guess? I don't mean that in a scary way. So what, what, what kind of states were people in sometimes when you had to really get out your magic spray? I remember the, <laughs> the old magic spray. On well, the ultimately it was Ruth that was over there, not me. So, yeah, so the, cool. um, I conducted the research with, as I said before, Ruth Anderson and Shona Holson is the, um, is the head of recovery at AIS. Um, so she she deals with putting the bodies back together, and Ruth <laughs> dealt with putting the minds back together. What kind of um, did they see that that were were the, so the most significant presentations of what people would come back into that room with? Disappointing performances are obviously devastating, and as I said before, if you've got a, a multi-day event where you've got to back up and and go again, if it's a, a final, you know you've you've done prelims and then a semi and then rolling into a final. If you haven't performed the way that you had wanted to and things just didn't go the way you had expected or planned, then that that's devastating under pressure. Um, that in itself can can be one of the biggest things and. And getting back into a mindset of, of feeling in control and ready to go again can be tough. And I think, again, that's just like the everyday person too, is that they're, you know, sometimes the, as those chronic stresses roll in day after day, it's that feeling of not being in control and how do, they, how do they regain that control in order to feel as though, well, not just feel as though, you know, actually have um, a sense of um, power again over the course of their day, um, whether that, you know, be through building their resilience or, or other things. But, of course, as we're talking about, it's sleep. So what role um, would this athlete's sleep have, you know, in terms of not just the Olympics but in the work that you're doing every day? Yeah, I mean, not just the Olympics for athletes but, but week to week for athletes in training. Um, I'll talk about probably two different areas. So sleep in performance situations is quite different than sleep normally. So for an athlete training regularly, you're expecting that, 
the, the stress shouldn't necessarily be affecting their sleep too much. But there's enough research to say that pre-performance um, sleep is often very affected in, in athletes that the night before performing that, you know, people particularly, they don't necessarily feel like they've slept well. Whether they have or not is probably a different story, but they wake up feeling like they've had a very restless or poor sleep. Um, whereas train, under normal training conditions, their, you know, their sleep is more normal, um, but athletes do need more sleep simply because of the physical exertion that they're doing in training. Um, and, and, so, the, and the re- importance of that recovery process, is that what you mean? Absolutely. So I've got some statistics here on, on the, the detriments of sleep loss. So things like glucose metabolism, really important, um, not just for athletes, but for everybody. So fighting obesity and, and diabetes, if you've, you've got chronic sleep loss and it can lead to 30, 40, 30 to 40% reduction in glucose metabolism. Um, mm. that's, that's pretty significant. That's pretty significant. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, like, yeah. well, okay, might do some relaxation tonight before I go to sleep yeah. with my glucose yeah. metabolism. What else so, um, you know, the, the detriments of not sleeping, it, uh, and for an athlete, um, human growth hormone is primarily excreted during the nighttime. That is, has a lot to do with the muscle recovery, you know, and that's, that's really important. The physical side of things of sleep are really important, but the mental side of sleep, and sleep loss can be quite detrimental as well. So, you know, two days of sleep restriction can lead to a three-time increase in lapses of attention and reactivity. So if you're in a sport where you you need to be on the ball, concentrating, focused and really paying attention, um, that sleep loss or, or even the thought of sleep loss can be stressful in itself. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I think sometimes with my clients who are having poor sleep, some of the first pieces of information that I give them is not to be afraid of not sleeping yes. because the fear of not sleeping often triggers fight flight, which of course contraindicates or um, makes it even harder to get to sleep because fight yeah. flight, you're not meant to be asleep while you're in fight flight. So No, absolutely. And I think one of the, the interesting points that crosses over really well between the, the, the athlete sleep research and us normal people um, is that a lack of sleep doesn't necessarily affect performance. Your mood, your psychomotor and your cognitive function will decline quicker than your physical capabilities. So for an athlete who's lost sleep the night before a competition, there really isn't too much to be concerned about insofar as how much is it going to affect their performance. It's more just going to make them feel bad. <laughs> yeah, so, but then, so it's like this compounding effect then. So physically their performance is fine, but if yep. they don't understand that and able to say to themselves okay I didn't have a great sleep but that's okay because research tells me that my body physically can cope so what I need to do now is just focus and get on with it however if they start to say oh no I didn't have a good night's sleep what if that affects my performance this is a disaster how terrible oh no and so then of course we have the mindset sort of going off is that what you mean absolutely Absolutely. So the perception of sleep actually becomes more important than sleep itself. Wow. How crazy is that? Mm. Very interesting. So is that the is that the two points? You said like so sleep affected pre-performance. Was there another – did you say there was two points? I can't remember. I can't remember either. <laughs> <laughs> I was too engrossed in the information. Okay. So you said, so glucose metabolism is, metabolism is affected. So, yes, very important to get a good night's sleep for anybody in terms of, um, you know, bodily functions yes um but 
mood and and this is something that I talk about all the time is you know if we can get our nutrition right and our movement right and making sure we're hydrated but how important sleep is as one of your first lines of defense in terms of keeping your mood even so the other thing you said was psychomotor issues so can you tell us a bit about that how sleep affects that so that's just your general coordination and and movement so it, you know for for regular people things like driving and and reaction time with driving is going to be affected by sleep restriction so is there a difference then sorry if i'm getting technical and this might yeah. not be part of your research so is there a difference then if you're a marathon runner to say a tennis player because i imagine a tennis player has to be way more reactive and reading the ball that's coming at them constantly, whereas a marathon runner, the mindset might be different if they've had poor sleep. Has there been any? Do you, to any, my understanding, that there's been no research that's differentiated the effects between types of, of sports and the effects. So there's plenty of research being done with AFL players um, that that shows that their performances haven't you know, been affected by by lack of sleep, even though they perceive they've slept badly and they perceive their performance is worse if they haven't slept. But their performance, according to coach ratings, etc., hasn't changed. Um, but that's an interesting question as to whether for different sports it would make, you know, more of a difference. Depending on their rea- or how reactive they have to or responsive they have to be in their chosen sport, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So... Um, so the reality is that athletes experience sleep problems because of um, how they perceive it will impact on their actual physical performance and that that becomes cyclical because they, if they worry about their performance, then they may disrupt their sleep. And if they disrupt their sleep, it sort of compounds that, oh, I can't, this is getting That's harder stress. and harder. That's yep. stress. And so as we said, that kind of can be the same for everyday people. That stress has come in. They may not be about, you know, will I win gold? But it might be, you know, how successful will I be in X, Y, Z? Absolutely. Can I pay my mortgage? You know, illnesses and, and you know, big life events, as you said, the, the acute things that come out of nowhere, but then those long-term chronic issues as well. Yeah. Okay. So tell me um, a little bit about um, w- what would happen then. What's the usual process when someone comes in and you're um, – they've expressed some sleep issues do you work in a clinic setting now or do you what kind of how do you I guess dish out strategies on sleep absolutely yes I do work in a clinic set clinic setting so most of my work is one-on-one with performers elite performers um, elite athletes and elite dancers okay groovy yep Yep. Um, very exciting work Mm. Uh, pretty much all of them well 100% 100% of them I will talk to about sleep Yes, <laughs> um, as my pet topic but also because it really it really is the number one, well, I would say one of the, the number one top tools um, for recovery, for physical and mental recovery. So we need to maximise it as best we can. But the, the way we do that is look at general sleep hygiene um, tips. You know, we, we've got, got fact sheets and, and um, general tips that we use for sleep hygiene it's not groundbreaking stuff, though, those kind of sleep hygiene information. It's it's pretty general, but um, if people can just improve, I say to them, look, you're, not, you're never going to uh, fix everything on that list. Um, but if you can improve on three or five things, then it's going to improve your sleep, which will have a positive effect. So you've got to be realistic in, in what you expect people to change and do. 
Um, so what's but, on the list? What, what kind of things are on the list? Oh, look, the biggest one for me is screen time before, before bed. Yes, um, because there's a lot of research coming out, isn't there, about the tons, blue light being stimulating and, and... Tons, tons. It's you, you, You're really looking at litres, the equivalent of litres of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes, yeah. And all these so. people who are lying in their bed checking various social media sites before they go to bed. And I don't know if you've come across anything. So is it true about the blue light because our brain associates that with being daytime and the sky's blue and that's yes. why a lot of software is blue? I'm not, not, yeah, I'm not sure about the sky being blue and whether that's... <laughs> Association, but I think I might have just made that up. But yeah, yeah, the, the blue light does um, the the receptors in the brain. It does trigger um, has effects on your melatonin, which is the hormone that affects your sleep cycles. So um, that's definitely there's enough research to support that now that that's a big issue um, in affecting people's sleep. I mean, if you're tired enough, you're going to fall asleep quickly anyway. So it's not going to slow you down from falling asleep, but it quite likely will affect the quality of sleep you're having. Yeah. yeah. So the moral of that story is really limit your screen time. Just try. I know try. it's hard. Just try. <laughs> <laughs> um, because some people go, okay, I'll turn off the computer and then they'll go and sit in front of the TV. <laughs> or they'll lie in bed with their mobile phone, as you say. They'll, yes, looking uh, through. Just one last check just to see. Yeah, just winding down. Yeah. It's part, of the, part of their bedtime routine. and yes. um, Yeah, nice and relaxing, but not necessarily the best thing for you. Yeah. So what else is on the list? Darkened room, good temperature, um, you know, using lists before bed. If you, if one of the things we looked at in our research was trait anxiety. So trait anxiety is just, it, it's more of a fixed personality type thing of people who are higher, generally higher in, in anxiety than others. Um, and if you're that kind of person, then using things like lists before bed can help um, just so you're not falling asleep thinking too much. <laughs> I, like so writing lists about um, what you need to do the next day rather than thinking about them. Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. So I was wondering if you could give us a few more tips. What have you learned through your work with those amazing groups of athletes you mentioned before? What have you learned about maybe people through athleticism or through sleep? What are the interesting things you've learned? I think – the first thing is self, that self-perception um, can be really faulty. So how you thought you slept is most of the time wrong and that's not just for elite performers, that's for everybody. And that was, I think, you know, it, it, that's been, that wasn't unique to my research, that's been known for a long time, but it was interesting that it was confirmed in our study that, mm, yeah. that yeah, absolutely, people were way, way, way off in their own ratings of their sleep compared to, the actigraphy, actigraphy data, which is the the wristwatches we use to monitor their sleep, how they thought they slept, and then how that data it just didn't match up in so both directions. Was, in like, as in they thought, you know, I had a great sleep, but they didn't. Absolutely, all oh, over okay. the place. Okay. All over the place. So, what um, about those? I don't know if I can mention the brand name, but there's a, a particular device that people are wearing on their wrist these days, and you've got a different one who just reads the steps. Are they are they helpful for people to learn more about their sleep? Look, I don't, I don't know too much about them. The ones we use were obviously clinical. Yeah, they've got uh, a big fancy ones. name. Yes, that's very yeah, fancy. Yeah. So, Antigraphy, did you say? Actigraphy. Actigraphy. Okay. Yeah, it's an, it's, an, it's a portable alternative to polysonography, which is where obviously you go into a clinic and wire yourself up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's it is reliable enough for for research. So okay, um, interesting. Yeah, so that was one one of the things that that I've learned. 
Um, and I think that made me question the, the difference in people who are successful, like you mentioned earlier, tend to be their response to that. So if, the, if you've woken up and you feel like I've had a really, really crappy sleep, um, it's how you react to that, what decision that you make with what you do with yourself and then you do with your day that yes. might make the difference between those who do have that resilience and do thrive um, versus the ones who, who might not, you know, get so far with it, particularly so, in sport and dancing. So when someone perceives that they've something difficult has happened but they are able to say to themselves, well, that didn't quite go to plan. However, I'm going to do this and achieve this or aim for this today. Yeah, look, so, I mean, we had some, we had athletes in our study and we had dancers in the study and some of the dancers would, would take public transport um, to, to dance every day of up to two and a half or three hours. Um, so if you've woken up at five o'clock in the morning and you think you've had a really bad sleep, um, I... I really admire that they're then able to get themselves up, get organised, get on public transport and knowing that they're in for a, a 10-hour-plus day yeah. of physical activity is just amazing. Very impressive. I struggled to get out for just 30 minutes, <laughs> let alone 10 hours on a dodgy night's sleep. No, that's very impressive. So what about you? What have you learned about yourself through all this, all these elite athletes that you hang around with and, and sleep? Uh, I've always loved sleep. And when I was an athlete, I was a big sleeper. I would sleep all the time and I'd sleep anywhere and I would nap. I would, <laughs> I would nap on pool decks, you know, with hundreds of people around. I would I sleep, you know, I love sleep. I think uh, the research is just confirmed. Maybe it's just given me a really good excuse to sleep a lot. <laughs> like, see, I told you so. I need my sleep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it also did, you know, it did show me that um, maybe not having a big sleep the night before a performance. So, you know, as a non-athlete now, performance situations are different. So you could define a performance situation as a as a job interview or a, you know, a, um, you know, radio interview or, a, yeah. you know, anything, anything in life can be a performance situation. But realising if you haven't necessarily had the best sleep the night before, um, not to be worried about that and that your performance is still going to be just fine. Yes. Yes. Very important. So what, what are the three tips that you use for yourself or that you are the biggest three tips that you give your clients so to speak to keep themselves grounded or balanced uh, exercise um, I have to you know promote exercise there's so much research on the benefits of exercise it doesn't have to be world-class elite out there to break world records you know so sore you're not going to sit down for six months exercise yeah. <laughs> just just get moving um, your, your, your brain is attached to your body so you need to move your body for your brain to to work well um, yes, great. So that would be the first one. The second one would be if you can't catch a nap, um, practice meditation. It, you know, even at 10 minutes a day, that's something that I regularly do. Um, I do love my sleep, but I really don't get to indulge as much as I'd <laughs> like. Um, so meditation is something that I, you know, I use and, and find to be very, very effective in, in keeping me balanced and focused uh, throughout the day, especially with the longer days that yeah. I have. Yeah, 
That's excellent. Well, thank you so much. That was very enlightening, Lana. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Well, before I go, I just want to let our Brisbane and Gold Coast listeners know about two events that I'll be running. Uh, The topic is resilience for the anxious mind and body, because I know there are a lot of people out there who are experiencing anxiety and it's getting in the way of their everyday functioning, the jittery body, the unhelpful chatter, and of course, the what ifs. You may have even thought about seeing a GP or a psychologist to get some help with your anxiety. I'll be running two four-hour workshops where we will cover three major areas to improve resilience for your anxious mind and body. All you have to do is head over to the events page at carriethompsoncasey.com. That's Thompson without a P. The Brisbane event is on the 24th of March and the Gold Coast event is on the 27th of March. If this event would be helpful for you or someone you know, it would be great to see you there. Well, thank you for joining me and I'll see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realise your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.